0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. Over the four-week summer break between issues of the paper, the podcast is taking a virtual tour of a few places in Europe, through readings of pieces that have appeared in the LRB in recent months. This week, Lydia Davis reads her piece on Arles from the latest issue of the paper. The reading was recorded for the Trilling Lecture at Columbia University in 2019. And if you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast and would like to take out a subscription to the London Review of Books, you can get your first six issues for just £6. Go to lrb.me forward slash travel. That's lrb.me forward slash travel and start your subscription with a 79% discount.
1: What I will be reading tonight is a relatively small part of an ongoing piece of writing which I could describe most factually as being the elaborated notes of what I've been learning and discovering in my exploration of the history of the French city of Arles, a history which goes back about 2700 years, so there's a lot to read. The piece of writing began as notes taken during a visit to Arles last November when I noticed how within the small area of the old city over the centuries of occupation by different cultures, densely enclosed, so many of the structures were reused, rebuilt, enlarged, etc. This repetitive progression being the only way the changing cultures could adapt for their own needs the same limited space. The nuns of Santa Clara, for instance, after rehabilitating earlier monastic buildings just outside the city walls, which they had taken over from an earlier order, and this was in about, I think, the 1300s, were forced 100 years later by the city to leave them, at which point the city destroyed the buildings and used the resulting debris of stone and sand to reinforce the city ramparts. Arles in Provence, on the lower part of the Rhône River, the marshy Rhône Delta, on a limestone hill 25 meters above sea level, was settled by Ligurians, by Greeks from Phocaea, by Celts, and in 46 BC, more lastingly by the Romans, as a retirement colony for Caesar's 6th legion. Curious outsiders have been visiting the city as tourists for hundreds of years, most of them first drawn by the Roman monuments and the carved portal of the Church of Saint-Prophime. For instance, important visitors back in the 1300s would be taken down to see the obelisk from the Roman circus, which had been discovered not long before buried in a vegetable garden. Much more recently, tourists also include in their visit the places made famous by Van Gogh's time of living there, though he was there only a little more than a year. What I have been writing about Arles takes the form of short titled sections. And I'll also just add that I was already working on this when I was invited to give the trilling lecture, and I was going to say, no, I can't give the drilling really lecture because I can't switch gears and start, you know, write a talk about the very short story or translation. And then I thought, well maybe they'll let me talk about what I'm working on. And they said, yes, okay, fine. So that said, okay. But then of course then you have a strange shift because where before I was just doing it because I was doing it. Then I began thinking ahead to the talk and the audience and It changed it a little bit, but I think probably not essentially. The only other thing I want to say is that um, the form of it isn't, it's it's still in progress in the sense that I'm not sure. I know I want little sections with titles on them, but I'm not sure how I want to alternate actual historical facts and little stories and my own experience and so on. So it's still fluctuating right up to the last minute. So I'll begin. The impression of an earlier traveler. An earlier traveler, Joseph Bard, in 1834, described Arles this way. It is an old city of an incredible opulence in debris lost in the swamps. The marshes. In earlier times, the Abbe of mont on a hill about five miles away from Arles, appeared to be an island rising up out of the marshes, marécages, that surrounded it. The Mosquitoes of Arles. Murray's Handbook for English Travelers to France, the standard 19th century guide, warns that Arles is unhealthy at certain seasons because of the marshes and pools in the vicinity. Even today, there are hosts of mosquitoes in Arles clear into the month of November and no screens on the windows so that if you expect to have a good night's sleep, you must, before you go to bed, swat as many of the little insects as possible against the walls and ceiling of your hotel room where they tend to rest and not open the window until your lights are out. The five main areas of Arl. There are five main neighborhoods within the preserved old part of Arles. The Cavalry in the north, the Auture, which is the highest part on the hilltop in the northeast, the Cité in the center where the city hall and the saint Trophime church are, the Maison in the middle along the riverside, historically the main commercial area, and the neighborhood formerly of fishermen and farmers to the west of the center, La Roquette, La Roquette used to be called the Vieux Bourg, the old town, and in the 12th century was still walled off from the rest of the city. The Cavalry used to be called the Bourg Neuf, or New Town. The Cite was the center of power, both church and civil. The Maison, the middle, was a district of merchants and included the Jewish quarter. Can I ask uh, if any of you have been to? Can you raise a little bit higher? Good. I hope you spend enough time there to know what I'm talking about, but it'll mean a little bit more to you. The changing functions of buildings. In the Othuro district at the top of the city, in the former parish of La Madeleine, once important enough to subsume another whole parish, the church building, its steeple gone, now resembles a modest old stable and is used as a garage and workshop, privately owned. The hillside. The city is built on a gentle slope, an outcropping of limestone with the Roman amphitheater close to the top. There are perspectives up and down and from the top out over the countryside. And even as you walk down into the flatter areas, you have a sense always of where you are the slope of the hill behind you, the broad river always to your right, beyond the houses. You are heading away from the Roman arena and the Roman theater, down toward the middle of the old city. In the center, as you rest for a moment in the very heart of it, on the Place de la République, you share a bench with an older woman who has greeted you before sitting down and who, after looking for a while, calmly around at the city hall and the Church of Saint-Trophime, and the cluster of people laughing and jostling by the fountain and by the Roman obelisk, which was rescued from the vegetable patch and 300 years later brought up the hill with great difficulty to this square, takes a nail file out of the depths of her purse and discreetly works on her nails. Here in this very peaceful sunlit square, you are in the historical center of power of Arles, ecclesiastical and civic The archbishop's palace is also in front of you, with, out of your view, its courtyard where the Lion of Arles was once kept in a fenced enclosure. Then, when at last you leave the bench, taking care to say goodbye to the older woman, who nods and smiles, you go on down into La Roquette, into what used to be the neighborhood of farmers, sailors, fishermen, and dock workers, and finally to the end of the city, and maybe even beyond it, to the old circus built outside the town by the Romans and still outside the old town where the obelisk once stood. Notable figures of Arles, Saint Caesarius. Saint Caesarius, circa 470 to 543 AD, lived at a time of intersection of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. Roman law was still in force as well as Institutions such as slavery, the Camargue and its marshes, later to be drained by canals, still began then at the gates of Arles. Saint Caesarius describes them in his sermons as harboring useless plants and disgusting creatures. In his day, the usual language was still Latin, and it was in Latin that he delivered his sermons. Not all the population was Christian. There were also adherents of the Arian heresy, in which Christ was a secondary deity, and even pagans who still worshipped Jupiter. Saint Caesarius condemned a provision of Roman law still practiced at the time, which allowed a young man to take before his marriage concubines, which he would then abandon after several years in order to take a legitimate wife. They do this with the support of civil law, said Saint Caesarius but certainly not with the support of heaven. The Roman amphitheater and its transformations. The Roman arena of Arles built in the first century BC was in use for about 400 years for gladiatorial combat of various kinds, including gladiators versus wild boars, tigers, and other wild animals. And when filled with water for staged naval battles, We know from the remaining Roman stone seats that the width of a seat for a spectator in Roman times of whatever social class was just under 16 inches. Sailors operated the movable roofs that were extended over the arena to shade the spectators or protect them from rain. By the 8th century, the arena had been converted into a fortification with four stone towers, three of which are still standing. Also in the Middle Ages, the outsides of the arches were filled in, and houses were built inside the arena and up against its outer walls, so that in time, over many years, a fortified village was created, complete with streets, a public square, and two chapels, one containing the remains of St. Genesius, patron saint of notaries. The village continued in existence until the 1800s, described in the Murray guidebook in harsh terms as being, quote, filled within and choked up without by an accumulation of mean hovels occupied by the poorest and worst part of the population of the town to the number of 2,000. Then in an upsurge of interest in the city's Roman heritage, the decision was made to raise the houses and clear out the village. And this began in 1823 and was mostly accomplished by 1844. When Stendhal visited the city in 1837, there were still a few of what he calls poor dwellings inside the walls. Despite the remaining houses, the first event to take place in the arena after much of the clearing was done was a race of the bulls in 1830 held to celebrate the conquest of Algiers the tortuous streets of Arles, Henry James. Henry James, visiting in about 1883 and writing about Arles, complains about the streets. He calls them tortuous and featureless, just as John Murray in his handbook some 30 years earlier had described them as forming, quote, a labyrinth of dirty, narrow streets, more intricate than any other perhaps in France. James complains about the material with which they're surfaced, which he calls, quote, villainous little sharp stones. He is referring to the stones brought to the city from the valley of Lacroix, that place called by one guidebook, quote, weird wasteland to pave the streets. James goes on to say more emphatically that, quote, the rugosities of its dirty lanes affect the feet like knife blades. Those stones are, it is true, sharp and small, but they no longer pave the streets of Arles except in one short street near the top. And the streets of the old center of Arles, though still narrow and tortuous, and many of them, once you're away from the cafes and restaurants, dark at night, despite the regularly placed old-style lamps standing on lampposts, or affixed to house walls, and empty of people at night, are kept very clean and tidy, except for the occasional corner or patch of wall where a mysterious heap of personal trash may be piled up. Every morning early, a small white cleaning truck comes along with its revolving brushes, pausing by a diminutive metal trash bag holder for the crew to remove and replace the suspended trash bag. Supplementing this vehicle are individual men in yellow vests and with brooms working by themselves here and there during the day or in the dark just before dawn. The overlapping of cultures. The Christian sarcophagi in the 4th century show figures of importance wearing Roman togas. St. Caesarius in the early 6th century wished to found a convent. He was aided in his quest for funds by Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths. In A.D. 539, the Frankish king, Childebert I, arranged for combats of gladiators in the Roman arena. The earliest form of the parish church of Notre-Dame de la Major on the highest eminence of the city, was built on the remains of a Roman temple to the so-called, good goddess, perhaps an aspect of sibling. The Place de la République and the Plan de la Cour. The Place de la République, the center of the city, was also known earlier as the Place du Marché, when the market was held there, or the Place Royale, And then the Place de l'Hotel de Ville, because that was where the Hotel de Ville stood. It still stands there, leaving the spacious, light flooded square, which has been compared to an Italian piazza. If you are heading toward the river, you can walk straight through the atrium of the Hotel de Ville as a shortcut to the streets on the other side, and many do. You enter from the Place de la Republique, pass under the complex ceiling, of intersecting shallow vaults, ignoring for the moment the little corner room off to your left from which you could, if you wanted, gain access to the damp, gloomy, underground crypto portico, and ignoring for the moment up the flight of stairs to your right on the first landing, the reproduction of the statue of Venus, which was discovered in the Roman theater during the digging of a well, and which Arles reluctantly gave to King Louis XIV so that it was taken away to Versailles and is now in the Louvre, and walked straight out the other side through what used to be the main entrance onto the Plan de la Cour, which, though narrow and short and small in size now, compared to the Place de la République, used to be the more important square when the Place de la République was considerably smaller than it is now. Inside the entry hall of the Hôtel de Ville, as you stare up at the complex intersecting vaults of the ceiling, you see people taking the shortcut first silhouetted against the bright sunlight bathing the Place de la République, then passing you, then disappearing at your back out into the bright sunlight of the Plan de la Cour. You have also watched from a different angle outside a boy on a scooter take this shortcut. He, with his mother, who is pushing a baby carriage containing an infant sibling, has left the daycare center that lies on the far side of the inner courtyard of the archbishop's palace, has come out of the courtyard, which also opens onto the Place de la République. He looks up to ask his mother's permission, his mother grants it, and with vigorous thrusts of his little right leg, he propels himself toward the doorway of the Hotel de Ville while his mother hurries up the street parallel alongside the Hôtel de Ville so that she will be there on the other side when he comes out. He is swallowed up inside the Hôtel de Ville as she disappears along the street and around the corner to meet him in the Plan de la Cour. The winds of Arles. The Mistral, the famous wind, is usually the prevailing wind, but it is and was not the only named wind there are pictures called wind roses, directional wheels showing all the winds of Provence with their names. There were not just four named winds, or even eight, or even 16 or 24, but on one wind rose I consulted 32 named winds, each blowing from a different direction. And in a document drawn up by the Clarisse, the nuns of the Order of Saint claire as they prepared to sell their house in the Rue Vallin, not their first and not their last home in Arles, a document that described in detail the neighboring properties, how the neighboring properties abutted their property. They referred to certain directions using the names of the winds. One was in Provençal, Auro Drecha, a direction not north by northwest, but north of north by northwest. In other words, almost due north. Another direction they called Marin, by which they meant southeast. More familiar names they used for directions were Levant and Couchon, or Ponnon, in other words, in the direction of the rising or the setting sun. The Roman Forum and the Crypto-Portico. In a newly established city or military camp, the ancient Romans customarily laid out a main north-south road called a Cardo, and an intersecting main east-west road called a Decumanus. In Arles, the Cardo is the Rue de l'Hotel de Ville that runs along the side of the spacious Place de la République, and the Decamanus is the Rue de la Calade, which descends the hill from the remains of the ancient Roman theater to intersect with the Rue de l'Hotel de Ville, close to the city hall itself. The Roman Forum was customarily built at or close to the intersection of the cardo and the Decamanus. And that is the case in Arle II, although the Roman Forum itself is gone, but for a few traces above ground and the very extensive cryptoportico underground, which supported the arcades of columns above ground and which is almost fully visible with its double arches, though dark and in certain seasons wet and muddy underfoot and forbidding in its gloom and emptiness and the continuous drips from its ceiling. It was along the old Roman north-south Cardo, now the rue de l'Hôtel de Ville, that the young mother with her baby carriage hurried, almost running, to meet her small son, who was passing swiftly on his scooter through the atrium of the Hotel de Ville, out the other side to the old Plan de la Cour. Reuse in Les Alicons, near the Roman necropolis of Les Alicons, which lay outside the city on the Aurelian Way. In 1852, on the neighboring farms, cattle drank out of stone troughs, which were empty sarcophagi. The lids of the coffins were used as little bridges over the ditches. At the far end of Les Alicons is an early church, St. Honorat, parts of St. Honorat, were built using pieces of stone from the sarcophagi. Three early Christian sarcophagi were brought into the church of saint Trophime. One, dating back to the fourth century, was set into the northern gutter-bearing wall and serves as an altar for baptisms. Starting in 1848, the railway yards and locomotive sheds were built in the middle of the Roman necropolis wiping out one of the handsomest burial grounds of antiquity. Also occupying the grounds of the necropolis were later factories, a canal, and a housing estate. Of the 19 chapels once standing in the cemetery, only two are left. One of them serves as the ticket booth from which admission to the cemetery is sold. In the 1860s, as witnessed by the young Frédéric Mistral and his friends, who were wandering there one night after drinking at a tavern and heard a sepulchral voice issuing from the depths of one of the coffins, the homeless used the sarcophagi as places to sleep. Individual citizens of Arles we encounter by name in the histories. The homeowner in the Rue Balls, who tried unsuccessfully to prevent the construction of a chapel by the Jesuits, Across the street from him in 1654, complaining that it would block his light and sunshine. This was Gaspard Reynaud. The man whose house was bought in 1884 and torn down to clear a site for the Amedee Pichot fountain that greets visitors to Arles as they enter the city from the direction of the railway station, walking up the Rue de la Cavalerie. This was a wig maker named Sotker the man whose hand was eaten in 1407 by the Lion of Arles, as reported by Bertrand Boisset in his Chronicle. This was Johann Ansvera, who survived the incident and lived on thenceforth with two arms, but only one hand. The man and woman who sold their property in 1368 to the Jewish community for a cemetery inside the city wall close to the Porte du Marché Neuf. These were Renoir de Ville, an apothecary, and his wife, Jacquette Higue. The fisherman whose house by the Rhone was bought and torn down to clear a site for the defensive tower called the Tour de l'Ecorchoir, erected in 1372. This was Esteve Léon. The man whose wife owned a malformed white hen that had three legs and feet on one side, and one on the other, as reported by Bertrand Boisset in his Chronicle in 1397. This was Juanet de Poqueras, probably of the Vieux-Bourg neighborhood. The man who, with his wife, was hired in 1442 to act as guardians of the third Jewish cemetery in a hayfield at Bourg-la-Caux, outside the city, after marauding wild animals became a problem there. This was Berengarius Barani. The keeper who, in 1453, was paid 20 florins for providing the meat for the Lion of Arles, kept in the palace courtyard of the archbishops. This was, in Latin, Hugo Nicus Davidis. The Rue de Carme. There is a short street near the Place de la République called the Rue des Carmes. It has a dogleg bend in it and just at the bend is the doorway of a bookshop specializing in small press poetry books. You learn that when you walk down this street south from the Rue de la République, which is at your back, you are walking down what used to be the nave of a large church, the Church of the Carmelites. Between the bookshop and the Rue de La République where the street originates. On the east side, there are several buildings owned by a chef whose restaurant is located in one of them. He has another restaurant through an archway that opens on the street and across a courtyard. On the far side of the courtyard to the right, you see a line of smaller arches now filled in and one half of an arch. Later, you realize that this is part of the cloister of the old church. It was falling into ruin and was sold by the church to a neighbor. It was after the revolution that the church was taken down. The crypts, which had served as burial places, were either simply abandoned or filled in with rubble. For a time, because of the now disused crypts below, where the dead had lain, the newly created public street was called the Rue des Morts, or Street of the Dead. On a nice day, when the windows and doors of the houses and shops now lining the street are open, You can look into them and see vestiges of the old church, parts of the chapels, vaulted ceilings, columns, or capitals. The Jewish cemeteries, the second at Porte du Marché Neuf. Not far from the site of the church and cloisters of the Carmelites, you go in search of a shoe repair place that might be able to sew up your watch band. There is one just south of the intersection of the Rue de la Rotonde, and the Rue du Président Wilson. The shop is a very small place. Just two people inside, on the near side of the counter, entirely fill the space, and a neighborhood woman briskly approaching the shop in the course of her errands turns away when she sees that it is full. When you crossed the intersection on your way to it, you later learn you were walking over what used to be a cemetery of the Jewish community in Arles their second cemetery. It lay just inside the medieval ramparts in an area which then had the strange name of Old Lettuce, Lechuga Vieja in Provençal. For the cemetery, the Jewish community in 1368 bought a piece of land from an apothecary and his wife for 14 florins. The Jews of Arles had not only their own school, baths, cemetery, and charitable institutions, but also their own gallows, first across the river outside the village of Trenquetail, then on the road that led to the village of Raphael. Architectural terms, dripstone. A dripstone is a molding over a door or window that deflects rain and decoratively enhances the opening, typically in medieval architecture. A dripstone may also be called a hood mold, A hood mold may terminate in a pair of headstops, small sculpted heads. Notable figures of Arl, the lion. The lion of Arl was a symbol of the city depicted on various coats of arms and other decorative elements. The oldest seal of the community depicts the lion on its reverse. There was an actual lion or a succession of lions kept by the city in the courtyard of the palace of the archbishop's enclosed within an iron fence. One was given to the city by the Count of Provence, and at that time he paid for its upkeep. Later it was the city that paid, and there exists extant a receipt from the lion's keeper who furnished the lion's meat, called in the Latin of the document, Nutrimenti Leonis, dated 1453. The lion was made to engage in fights, one with a bull in the courtyard of the archbishop's palace and one with a ram also inside the lion's enclosure. The lion once tore off the arm of an incautious locksmith who died of his wounds and once ate the hand of another man who survived. By the mid 16th century, the city had decided that the lion cost too much to maintain and got rid of it, we don't know how. Forche patibulaire, Bertrand Boisset, the 14th century surveyor and chronicler of Arles, described a hanging in 1394 across the river on a hill in Trinquetail, now a part of Arles, but then a separate fortified village. When he referred to the forks of elm wood used for the hanging, what he meant was the gallows as constructed in those days. Two forked poles or tree limbs would be stuck in the ground with a transverse pole of wood between them. And from this, the condemned person would be suspended. Boisset writes, the forks of elm wood had been planted on an elevation of earth or a height. On this elevation of earth or height, no one had ever before seen forks or a hanged person. The man remained on the forks for a year. Then he was taken down and buried at night in the cemetery of Saint-Pierre de Trinquetail with the permission of the Archbishop of Arles. The forks remained planted in that spot until they fell of their own accord because their bases had rotted. Boisset's orchard at the Porte de la Roquette. In the days when Bertrand Boisset was writing his chronicle, this gate in the medieval rampart was called the Porte de Saint-Claire, or as he wrote in Provençal, Lo Portal de Santa Clara. It was named after the convent of the nuns of Saint claire that stood outside the wall at that time. He records that on December 3rd, 1384, he planted inside the wall on the east side of the gate a white poplar. Ten years later, on December 18th, 1394, he planted in the same place, which was an orchard belonging to him, a walnut tree language notes. In the 6th century, the most commonly used language in Arles was still Latin, and it was in this language that St. Caesarius, for example, delivered his sermons. There may have been or must have been, however, another language, a sort of patois, a romance language, in the process of formation. Alphonse Daudet in the 1860s listened to his friend Mistral read aloud to him some of his verses and remarked that The beautiful Provençal language is more than three-quarters Latin. Van Gogh in the Hotel Dieu. When Van Gogh became ill one night, temporarily losing his reason and cutting off the lobe of one ear, which he took to a prostitute of his acquaintance who fainted at the sight of it, he was transported to the Hotel Dieu Hospital, also known as the Hotel Dieu Saint-Esprit. This was a set of buildings including a two-story arcade forming a rectangle around a courtyard planted with trees and flower beds and including a fountain and a well. It was founded in the 16th century to bring together under one roof all of the city's 32 charitable institutions. It accommodated not only the sick but also orphans and abandoned infants and impoverished children. The buildings continued to function as a hospital until 1974, in 1986, it became a cultural center and now houses a multimedia library, the Municipal Archives, the Literary Translators College, and a part of the University of Arles. It also contains on one side of the ground floor, two gift and souvenir shops in a café. It was a petition on the part of his neighbors that caused Van Gogh to be incarcerated a second time in the same place. They were disturbed by his peculiar appearance and behavior. The signing of acts. Acts and other legal documents included not only signatures and dates, but also the place in which they were signed. This is sometimes the only information we have that such a place existed. Church documents were often signed in the bedroom, camera in Latin, of a church official. They could also be signed by a church official in a corridor, Corritorio. The act granting the Jewish community a new cemetery in Plon du Bourg, their third cemetery, in a hayfield outside the city walls, with the stipulation that they could use the grounds also for recreation, except during March, April, and May, until the hay was cut and gathered into haycocks, was signed in the home of the scholar Isaac Nathan, the people of La Cavalerie and their petition of 1864, the plantings of the Place Lamartine. One of several requests to the city by the petitioners of La Cavalerie in 1864 was that the plantings of the Place Lamartine, then known as the Place de la Cavalerie, be improved. And this was granted giving Van Gogh, 24 years later, a subject for painting that was right across the street from his house. The traffic circle that exists there now has several mature trees on it and some grass, but none of the lush thickets and winding paths that Van Gogh painted. Another part of the former gardens is now mostly paved over in concrete and obstructed by the shuttered booths of an out-of-season funfair. A single sheep and a doorway. Because of the photographic evidence in a postcard image of a flock of sheep filling the Rue du Quatre Septembre many decades ago. And because we can recognize a certain doorway in the photo that still exists, we can walk up to this doorway in the now empty street, look at its threshold, and know that on that spot many decades ago, a single sheep out of the flock of several hundred paused there to turn her head and look back at the rest of the flock coming up behind her. Reuse, the Tour de l'Ecorchoir. At the far end of the old city, the southwesternmost end, the Tour de l'Ecorchoir, known first as the Torre Leone, was built in 1372 as a defensive tower on the site of the home of a fisherman to defend the city of Arles at its southwest corner from attacks coming from the river on whose banks it stood. It was later renamed Torre Nova, at a time when it was undergoing reconstruction and repair. The Tour de Le was for a time also known as the Torre Santa Clara, after the nearby city gate of the same name. The city gate, the Portail Santa Clara, was in turn named after the nearby convent of the Clarisse, the nuns who were to be forcibly removed from their convent by the city. After it ceased to be used for the defense of the city, the tower became a slaughterhouse and was renamed the Tour de la Boucherie or the Tour de l'écorchoir, an écorchoir being a place where the carcasses were flayed. After it was no longer needed as a slaughterhouse, it was used to store furniture. By 2018, and certainly long before, it was in partial ruins and overgrown with vegetation. One could walk up to its empty black window hole on the ground floor, look in and see signs of occupation by campers or the homeless, sleeping bags, collapsed tents, and various personal possessions strewn among the rubble in the dim light of the tower floor. Reuse, two old buildings on the outskirts of town. Two structures on what used to be the northern slope of the Moudarez Hill outside of town to the northeast were known as La Morgue and La Poudrière, the Morgue and the powder house and still existed in 1992. They were at that time being used for storage by the municipal service for the distribution of garbage bags. Hypothesis. We read a study of the remains of Pompeii and wonder if by examining Pompeii, we can tell something about the types of structures and the layout of the shops, homes, workshops and streets. As well as the widths of the streets of Roman Arles, which was about 134 years old by the time Pompeii was buried. The side streets in Pompeii that ran off the large Via dell'Abbondanza varied in width, but most were three to five meters wide. These widths easily correspond to the widths of the smaller streets of the old center of Arles. The Roman roads buried. If we can see a section of old Roman road uncovered in the city of Narbonne, another important Roman colonial city of Provence, where it is on display in the main square before the city hall. It is conceivable that throughout the old part of Narbonne and therefore also throughout the old part of Arles, the Roman roads remain several meters below the surface of the present day pavements the vanished parish church where the cafes, houses and shops now line the east side of the Place du Forum, including the famous cafe now painted yellow, that Van Gogh depicted in his cafe terrace at night. There once stood a parish church, Saint Lucien and its cemetery. We walked downhill through a narrow street in the evening with the intention of entering the Place du Forum and passing through it on our way to dinner. The street we walk down to reach the Place du Forum, when we are nearly there, strangely bends to the right and then to the left again just before it reaches the Place. What it is doing is skirting the spot where the old cemetery was. The same road as it was a few hundred years ago swung wide of the cemetery, and so does the road as it is now, though the cemetery is no longer there. Historiographic tradition, as they call it, has it that the foundations of this church date back to the 6th century. Parts of it, specifically the lower southern side of the nave, are preserved in certain neighboring houses. Also, if you go down into the gloomy, damp Roman cryptoportico and follow it around to its northern gallery, you will be able to see underground the apse of this church and the base of the altar of the lower chapel. And the last section is called Miscellaneous Brief Notes to be Incorporated. Little girls of the 6th century might wear gold earrings and bracelets and might chatter among themselves in church. In the 15th century, Jews in their wills would include legacies of olive oil for lighting lamps in the synagogue. The Gallo-Romans were great consumers of bread and gruel, bouillie, French writers writing about France and French history sometimes refer to the country as our hexagon. In the vestibule of the Chapel of the Blue Penitents, one could still see in the 18th century a door which was once that of the synagogue, but the destruction done to the Chapel of the Penitents for the construction of a waterworks in the late 19th century wiped out the last vestiges of the synagogue. From Murray's Handbook for Travelers in France, part two, 1884 edition, the country about Arles is solitary and suspicious-looking tramps are often seen prowling about. A good thick stick, therefore, is an appropriate companion for a pedestrian. Murray's Handbook notes that the Camargue in its climate, soil, and even fauna resembles Africa and the borders of the Nile more than it does France. The plan de la cour in the 18th century was once laid with fine polychrome paving. Carts, carriages, and wagons were not allowed into the courtyard, only people on foot. Most of the buildings of the old part of Arles are from the 17th and 18th centuries. However, many of the private houses behind their 17th and 18th century facades date from earlier centuries. In official documents of the Middle Ages, at least some of them, nobles were always identified as nobles at each mention of their name, and Jews identified as Jews. At the time of the Revolution, there was a well called the Puy de la Trinité in front of the Hotel Laval Castellan in the Rue de la République, the present Museum Arlatan. It was the last public well in Arles, gone by the late 1800s. The stone moldings under some windows are renderings of the drapery that would be hung out on special occasions for royal visits, for instance. Arlet, these twice-hosted kings of France, Louis Thirteenth in 1622, Louis XIV in 1660, after the visit of the sickly 14-year-old Charles the IX in 1564. In the 17th century, the Angelus would ring from about 40 churches. We heard the ringing of a church bell just once soon after our arrival. Within the famous and much-visited Saint Trophime cloisters, the central space was at one time the canons' cemetery. Shipping along the river was mainly of stones, wheat, salt, and fish. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast and would like to take out a subscription to the London Review of Books, you can get your first six issues for just £6. Go to lrb.me forward slash travel. That's lrb.me forward slash travel and start your subscription with a 79% discount.